Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. Today, nothing less than Western civilization is our topic as we explore what it means to decolonize a museum. We look at what it means uh, in terms of the curriculum that's being taught in Australian schools. Where's Western civilization in that curriculum? And if it's not there, what has replaced it? We'll be talking about that in the context of New South Wales. Joined, as always, by my co-host from RMIT, no less than Dr Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. And it's raining doctors here in the IPA Bailey Meyer studio in Melbourne. I have, of course, very great pleasure to welcome back Dr Bella Debrera. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on again. And we'll be talking in a moment about uh, why it's been such a long delay mm -hmm. uh, to have you back in the studio. But uh, Bella, of course, is the director of the Foundations of Western Civilization program at the IPA, so she knows whereof she speaks. And later on in the show, as always, we'll be having our usual books and culture segment. This is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to our website, ipa.org.au, and see how you can join or donate. But um, yes, Chris, Western civilization, decolonization, small topics. <laughs> where, do, where does one start? Well, it's good to have Bella um, uh, on board this week because, Bella, you've been doing a lot of research and work into this. I'm particularly interested in the decolonize, de sorry, decolonizing museums and libraries. But why don't we open with, um, why don't we start light? Why don't we start light about your detention in the uh, Northern Territory? Voluntary um, detention. I wasn't arrested for anything. Yeah, just sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's what I would also describe <laughs> it if I was in your situation. Um, you had a really, really fun piece in the Spectator. Um, was it last week um, uh, on your time in the Northern Territory? Yes. Look, it was. Um, it was. It was a. It was wonderful to be able to write a diary piece that I've never had to do that for the Specky before. It was. It was a different. Um, a different uh, kettle of fish, really writing something that's not particularly. Um, controversial, but it was quite fun. But um, I, I left. I made a decision to 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 escape Victoria mm. um, at the height of the. The lockdown. technical term is flee. I'm sorry, flee. <laughs> I, I, As, I, I, I immediately the image that comes to mind is remember the great photo of the East German border guard yeah, yeah. leaping over the yeah. barbed wire to get out. That was what I basically did with yeah. my mother, with my 77-year-old mother, who actually turned 78 in the detention centre. Um, I managed to get a birthday cake actually delivered from Coles. <laughs> um, and uh, we only just, you know, I, as I mentioned in the Spectator piece, I hadn't realised how hairy it was actually trying to leave. I, I hadn't twigged that we weren't officially allowed to get to the airport. You know, it wasn't one of the four reasons. Um, but still I was allowed to, you know, purchase a ticket online and, you know, get, get on a plane. It was, it's just totally uh, sort of this schizophrenic thing that we were living through. Um, and uh, we were taking... You, you went you went supermarket shopping at the airport. Yes, that's right. I needed to go to the Coles in Sydney via Darwin, <laughs> which is what I would have said had they asked me, but they didn't. Well, they sort of said, well, why, you know, why are you leaving Victoria? And I said, I'm taking my mother to, to visit my, my brother. And, and um, it's good actually traveling with an elderly mother because you look, you get less questions because yes. she was already looking stressed. Why are you leaving Victoria yep. is a question. Why, many, many tens of why, thousands of people are now being asked. Why are you leaving? Are you ever coming back? No. Um, so the, 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 the detention centre, which was a, a really well built, actually, it was a, um, um, a mining camp built by the Japanese. So it was, it was pretty nice, given that it was a mining camp, um, was uh, an, an extraordinary experience. You know, we were in a very small space for two weeks, um, literally just surrounded by, by guards and the p police walked through a couple of times a day. Um, we had to wear our masks when we went on the on the, the balcony in 40 degrees. So let's see how long masks last uh, over summer in, in, in Victoria. I don't think people are going to be managing those very well because I've seen what it's, I've felt what it's like trying to wear them when it gets, you know, above 30. Um, and um, I, I got through this this quarantine with um, a friend of mine and my mother and uh, another girl that we met on the plane just by sheer um, optimism at the fact that we'd, we'd got out of this lockdown and we were heading towards the various free states. Um, so I went on to New South Wales and other people went on to, to, to Queensland, other people went to South Australia. But the general um, feeling in the camp was um, relief and optimism and, and, and an idea that people had actually taken control of their own lives again and become masters of their own destiny, which I thought was an interesting thing because we'd all lost that. We weren't even allowed to leave our house for more than mm. an hour at a time. But now I'm free to go and I'm free to decide where I'm going to go and I'm free to decide how long I'm going to be outside for. Um, and um, and it, was, it, was a great, it was a great feeling. But most of the people 
uh, were not fan of not fans of the current premier and um, were moving permanently out of Victoria. You know, a little little tale of freedom there, mm-hmm. um, and how swiftly you can psychologically adjust to not having it. Yes, which is a bit a bit yes. scary. Yes, and I was actually okay because of what we'd been through. I was actually okay being in a in a very confined space for two weeks as well. The last few days got a little bit difficult, but it was surprisingly easy. If I'd gone straight from absolute freedom to that camp, I think it would have been a lot harder. But And to return to your point, the bizarre feeling that we had during the lockdown, there's only four reasons to leave your yes. house. And, and you know, so, so I'm working from home. A lot of us are working from home at the moment. So you just go to the shops in the middle of the day mm. just because you feel that you need to do yeah, something Yeah, you need else. to get out of the house. <laughs> You just need to get, or or on the weekend, you're like, I should probably go to Bucks. Um, it just it feels like something I should do. I probably need sticky tape or something. Um, and the 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 constraint that you can't that you weren't able to mm. for so long for mm. 15 weeks or so just make those completely arbitrary decisions about like you know I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to a shop. Oh, I'm just gonna get in my car and drive further than five kilometers. It turns out that's a fundamental liberty. That is a fundamental liberty that we didn't, that we we obviously were taking for granted. Hmm. So it was an opener. Yep. No, but now, now liberated and great. Now liberated, exactly. And come back via via Sydney. Yes. um, uh, Which uh, is enjoying itself at the moment. It is. Yeah. No, good to see. Good to see. Um, so apart from so, apart yes. from being locked down, but yeah, um, in the meantime, uh, I was reading a lot about this decolonizing business <laughs> okay. going on in various libraries and museums this is, around. This is this is a segment called "What I Read During Quarantine." What I read, so. yes. Um, <laughs> gosh, it's and and the more that I got into it, the more the more I realised how how complex it is, um, and how it it can't just be dismissed um, because it's it's very much entrenched in academia, and now it's this this practical. Um, post-colonial theory then is now finding its way into policy in museums and libraries in Australia and that's what I find most interesting and terrifying about it. So so take us through it. So what does it mean to so first of all where does this come from and what, what does it mean to decolonize a museum? So it seems so the decolonizing movement has come from post-colonial theory and it's been around in academia from what I understand since the to the 2000s. Um, there are actually a couple of courses in, in, in Australia, at uh, university courses that teach you how to decolonize. So you can go to the University of Newcastle and study decolonizing the Australian context, and you can go to the University of New South Wales and do decolonizing research methods. But even reading the course descriptions doesn't give you a clear idea about what decolonizing actually means. I think in, in, in theory, it's this idea that Museums and libraries are too Western. There's too much emphasis on Western civilization. There's too much emphasis on the Western canon. So there's an objection that if you go to uh, to the National Gallery in Victoria, for example, there'll be a whole there'll be rooms dedicated to European art, um, which is, according to post-colonial theory, which is is oppressive. So it's going to oppress anyone who is not white. It's so hard to explain. Yeah, and it's, then, it's and this then... idea that sorry, it's this idea that that museums that Western civilization in the museum and library context are oppressive to people of other the, the others the 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 other the, the the minorities the people of color and and uh, and people who don't necessarily look white so it's all down to sort of racial and I'm not explaining this well but, but, am I? But in, it's in, so in, hard to explain but let's let's start with some examples yeah. so because some of the examples I've seen that uh, conversely though when say, exhibits in museums um, are about, say, Indigenous cultures, Mm. um, and particularly in countries like uh, Australia and America, obviously, where there were pre-existing cultures before uh, the Europeans arrived and colonised, because they did colonise. Perversely, though, even those exhibits then uh, become somehow inextricably um, uh, racist and oppressive because they portray... A vanished culture, and but isn't isn't it more? So isn't it more the? And I'm gonna give give it as I understand it. There's a um, a way of understanding the past and our cultures that is inherently um, centered around our own particular culture. So when we, as in a, a, a dominant majority, potentially design an exhibition about Australia's indigenous past, 
will do it from the perspective of the very people who had oppressed that indigenous culture itself. So it's sort of an outside looking in and um, an outsider looking in at a at an inherent uh, a, a not closed, but a a specific culture. And then the op, the the challenge of decolonization decolonization is to stop taking that outsider's perspective and actually have indigenous people themselves design those exhibitions. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. In a way yeah. that speaks to other indigenous yes. populations. But then they get caught up they get caught up themselves doing that because they say we have to use the Western ways of knowledge and exhibiting to do this. So we're we're still taking part in this oppressive process. And this is the problem that they're getting into, that they're still as long as you're in the museum setting and doing the, you know, the the the, the curating and labeling things and putting them behind glass cabinets and having them in a room so people walk through and read things, it's very it's it, in their minds it's still very much this. They're taking part in what they object to, which is the the Western way of knowing, the Western knowledge, the Western idea of museums. So. Does this, you know, where where's it going to where's it going to lead? It's ultimately so, it won't so, work. So, what, what, where do we see this? So, so what are the what are the practical implications? I mean, we're talking about we're talking about theories of ways that we know things and perspectives, but but how does this manifest itself in in exhibitions in 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 real world museums? Well, this is a very good question because they're just trying they're trying to do it now. So they they've the one of the examples is the British Museum recently relabeled its. Um, it's it's Captain Cook collections um, to 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 reflect the the, the favoured narrative at the moment that that the that British invaded um, and that Captain Cook was was the the chief invader and he came with you know this the idea of conquering the lands and and th- this is the narrative that they've chosen so they've re they, what they seem to have done is just relabeled things um, and then of course there's complaints from Indigenous people here that. That they haven't relabeled them properly. That in fact, not only should they they have not only have they been mislabeled, they should be back in Australia, because they they are the rightful. Especially this the the shield that was um, has been labelled as Cook's shield for a long time. That was supposedly the shield that Captain Cook um, shot at uh, when 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 he 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 shot the um, the one indigenous man with a shield. And now they're actually saying, no, this wasn't even Cook's shield, and that's not even a bullet hole. That's a, that's a hole made by another spear. So <laughs> they're getting themselves into all sorts of trouble because now the indigenous Australians uh, are saying, no, you can't say it wasn't Cap- Captain Cook's shield. We actually like that it has that historical significance. Ha- what proof do you have that it wasn't Captain Cook's shield? And also it needs to come back to Australia, and the British Library is not even, has not even mentioned that it will send anything back. So the whole problem with this decolonizing thing is that are we meant to send, if we don't relabel them, are we meant to send th- these items back to their original countries? And can you imagine the complications of, of doing that? Like just even logistically going to your collections and then who did they belong to anyway? So yeah, it's this, almost, is, this yeah, is, the, is an almost an impossible thing to do. Yeah, well, that, that, that's right. It st- starts with, I think, two impulses. Um, this is from the outside looking in. Uh, you know, one is one is a reasonable... Uh, thing of oh, well, okay, well, there's say a collection of indigenous artifacts here. Um, you know, there might be a way of interpreting them that's a little bit more um, uh, cognizant of what we now know about those those cultures. Yeah, yeah. So it starts quite reasonably, but then there's also this thing about the, um, I guess the the sense of guilt, the original sin. That of course, you know, if you subscribe to the view that uh, uh, colonial societies are inherently systemically racist and oppressive then and you're in a museum and you've dedicated you've you've chosen as your career running museums Mm. and you've inherited this treasure trove of artifacts over 250 500 you know british museum you know three and a half thousand years of of pillage Mm. essentially which you knew before you took the job which you knew before you took the job presumably and then you presented with this critique and you're like Oh my God! What can I do to yeah. expiate the the sin of this, with, but still have the museum? Well, I can just start really stuff. I really, stuff. Stuff. I, I I really like, my like job. running yeah, I like, a museum. I like my job. I like it's my a job. Museum, I like the say. stuff. You know, there's <laughs> the isn't, re- isn't it a isn't it an understandable recognition that a museum makes 
an argument, that the exhibitions that you put on make an argument about the past or the world that we're in, in the same way that when you read a history book, you're actually reading an argument about the past that is probably pegged to some ideas about the contemporary world, just because that's the nature of how one one views the past. We always refract it through our own lenses. Isn't And we had this interesting conversation last week with Andrew Bushnell because we were talking about the um, role that the War Memorial plays because the War Memorial is both a museum and a memorial. And Andrew was um, uh, very frustrated, shall we say, about the idea that we might be um, marking negative things about our soldiers on a memorial to those the soldiers themselves but is it there's the the problem or or, or the 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 decolonialization the decolonization argument is surely that a museum has an argument it makes claims about the past let's change those claims it's like an it's a at its first step it, it's an assertion that that argument exists and that we need to be aware of that argument. Does that make sense? Or uh, and and framed that way, I'm I'm slightly more sanguine about it because I think it's definitely true. Museums make arguments. Yes, but the, but the, but I think there's a balance, isn't there? And um, I'm happy to have I'm happy to have these things relabeled because. As we were talking about earlier, there are a lot of items that might have been sitting around since the 1950s and covered in dust, and they haven't been looked at for a long time. And yes, they deserve to be to be re-examined and 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 brought up, you could say, to the 21st century. But but then it, I, f- I feel this is going this is going this is skewing too far in the other direction. This is this is a negative um, and very um, guilt-ridden view of 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 our past and of Western civilization, and I don't. I don't think it's healthy. And when you think about museums and you think about the the interest of the people and the curiosity of the people that put these museums together and put these items together, that wasn't their aim. There wasn't. I don't. I, I don't. I don't think. I think they were just generally interested in other cultures and other things and other items, and they yeah. wanted to put it all in a in a space for the public to be able to enjoy. And look, look, this is the world. This is this is not just. We haven't got one room just dedicated to to the history of the British Isles. We've got in the British Library. You've got rooms dedicated to every civilization in the world. It is a magnificent place to go, and it's because you can just walk from you know one room to another, and you can go through thousands of years of history. They have the Rosetta Stone for heaven's sake, um, and 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 suddenly coming in and saying no, this is. We need to be guilty about all this stuff. It's all, um, you know, you need to be guilty about being white. You need to be guilty about Western civilization. We need to relabel things. And then eventually we need to get rid of them because I think that's probably the, the next logical step. And I think it's really unhealthy and I think it's really, really bad for for public knowledge, for citizens of the of, of countries. And I think, it's, I think it's not a good direction to be going in. Yeah, and, and I, I, I challenge a little bit, uh, Chris, what you said. Uh, to say that you know, museums are about narratives. Uh, in America, the Smithsonian uh, was it's was referred to for a long time as the nation's attic, and and I think the British Museum certainly had that had that kind of view too. It's like they collect stuff, and even the you know the the leftist critique of uh, you know Edward Said coming up with this idea of Orientalism. Mm. I mean, Orientalism um, originally was. To be described as an Orientalist was uh, for a European gentleman who was actually interested in the East. It was actually a compliment. It was like, well, you know more about you know about our, our civilization. You know about something else as well. That's really impressive. You're yeah, a very knowledgeable person. Like some of the first traders into India who then adopted Indian dress and you know learnt, learnt uh, you know the, the the local languages and and collected started to become vast collectors. They may have um, uh, found some local wives. Uh, and so on and so forth. That that version of Orientalism then somehow gets retrospectively um, described as an appropriation. So I think what you're describing, Chris, is a much more modern phenomenon. You know, as as we said last, as I said last week about the Museum of Australia, um, at the time that was uh, built in Canberra, that 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 was how that was done. It's like they designed the narrative and then they designed the building to so that they could. Isn't it just a matter I, I, of politicising? They're politicising. We're po- they're politicising collections. We don't. Want, that that's unnecessary. We don't. This is the problem. This is the problem with 
the world now, and this is what Douglas Murray points out, stop politicizing everything because people are, people are, people don't want it just just leave it alone let's let's appreciate and look at these artifacts for the value and the the beauty behind them and the craftsmanship behind them and the historical period that they came from and what we can learn about the culture that produced it we don't need to politicize it we don't need to I have don't know. This. so so i <laughs> i think it's i think it's terrible. i didn't mean to come into this with a contrarian view but let's 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 lean in that direction so um i think that any so i i go to a lot of museums um, I mean, not since coronavirus, of course, but you know, I used to go to, back in the back in the old times. Um, and you walk through a museum, and um, uh, let's say it's an exhibition about history, um, as the British Museum is an extraordinary museum. And you walk through, and you see a collection of of artifacts. You don't see, unlike the, not even at the Smithsonian museums, do you see the attic. You don't see all the things that they have, and you you see a selection of them. And you see a selection of them matched with little pictures and so forth. And the designers of those exhibitions have to choose, are we going to emphasize um, uh, working class goods in the 19th century, or are we going to emphasize the incredible scientific discoveries of the 19th century or so forth? And, and by doing that, they're making an argument, they're making a narrative, they're telling a story and they're telling a political story it might be subtle it might be implicit but there's always a story there and i think the the i i'm not for the decolonization uh, uh, movement but i do think a recognition that when we talk about our history we are making a claim about that history is important and if we want to push back against what we think is distortions of our history. I think we need to be pushing back with, with that recognition that there are, there are uh, better ways to understand. There are more true ways to understand what has happened. Mm. Well, I, I, I'd be happy if it was a search for more true ways to understand. Uh, but what we've typically seen, and, th and this is, as I say, the original impulses um, uh, might be, you know, relatively benign and genuine, but uh, the the concern that's raised then is that when it's um, uh, taken over by uh, something of an agenda, assumptions, uh, you know, tendentious ideas that you know uh, certain societies are just in inherently systematic, systemically uh, racist and oppressive and patriarchal and all, all the other vices, then you haven't got a search for truth. It's just uh, a political. It's just a political agenda. Yeah, yeah. Then it's pure postmodernism. It's it, it's 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 a it's a narrative unmoored from the facts. And I guess that's that's the concern that uh, the selection will purely be to serve a political agenda. So so maybe, maybe there is always a, a story told, but then that doesn't give you carte blanche just to tell any story you want. So Hartwig Fisher, who's the director of the British Museum, is 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 one of the problems in this. He's he's pushing for this. So he said. Um, so he made a statement after George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matter. So he wrote a blog for the British Museum, which I would argue is out of place already. Um, but he said, um, so they obviously moved the statue, the, the bust of Hans Sloan, because he was in a pride, he was on a pedestal. And you can't have that because um, that's obviously, um, you know, uh, making, uh, elevating him to a status that he no longer deserves because his wife had... Um, uh, some interest in slavery. Um, actually, Sloan's income was only seven percent of of, uh, of his of his wife's income from slavery. But anyway, so they've moved they've moved the bust from from being on a pedestal to sort of hidden in a cabinet somewhere. Just it's just like this idea that statues have this have was the feelings. Bust. It's punishing the bust of Sir Hans Sloan. Th this is the bust that associated the the artifacts that he donated to the museum. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. We, well, they wouldn't have a museum without him. So, <laughs> so. So Hartwig Fisher wouldn't actually have a job without this man who is just now punishing, even though he's long since dead. Um, so he said, um, we have pushed him off the pedestal. We must not hide anything. Healing is knowledge. Dedication to truthfulness when it comes to history is absolutely crucial with the aim to rewrite our shared, complicated, and at times very painful history. I, I think this is, this is dangerous for the the director of the British Museum to be talking in these terms because what, what's going to happen to the rest of the collection? Healing is knowledge. Mm, apparently. Very postmodernist. Yes. Um, <laughs> I have to unpack that so one. So anyway, that's another one to unpack. But I just think, I think, you know, I don't think I'm being overly hysterical with this. 
Well, we, we well, shall see where it goes. Mm. I mean, that's that's the point. Well, Sorry, Chris. What, what what is the what, what do we think a purpose of a museum is? Um, uh, in that sense, I mean, the British Museum and most other museums have always been established for the for a national purpose. You know, they they tend to be government funded. They tend to be um, or established by highly politically connected people or people in positions of power, and they they. They they broadcast things. Um, I don't think that we should shy away from that. Now, um, we might argue that we need to be broadcasting a more liberal history of the world. We might be broadcasting, if I was to design a museum, if I was to curate a museum, I would be making an um, argument about the progress that society has travelled through over centuries. Um, but I would be broadcasting that message. Um, and I, I wonder whether maybe maybe we're now in an environment where the the museum content is so controversial that the idea of a museum, a shared history, is actually really hard to sustain. Well, yes. I mean, this is this is why this is why I'm saying I don't think I'm being hysterical because what is the future then if you're if you're really if you're doubtful about the if you believe that the institution that you're running is is just um, as a tool of oppression, then then how can you justify your job there at that museum? How can you justify having a museum? Might as well give it all up. Yeah. And just uh, lock the doors. I don't know. I mean this is the yeah. uh, well I mean and this is what they're doing in the the, the, the libraries, the 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 um, the National Library in Wellington in New Zealand is 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 giving away, is throwing out or discarding six hundred thousand volumes that don't um, that aren't that are too foreign because they're making space for New Zealand Maori and Pacific collections. So they're actually starting to do that already. Yeah, which is a bizarre idea, given mm. what you thought that the history. Oh, sorry, the purpose of a library. Yes, is, and they're actually is... doing the same thing in the National Library here. They've written into their policies that they're going to stop collecting foreign books, um, and they're only going to focus on Australian books. And if they are foreign books, they have to be relevant. They have to talk about Australia. So that sort of so so a library is so. I, I've made an argument already that there's a, a museum has a narrative, um, and that's because there's only so much room for particular things. And you know, you you want to you you want to provide the visitors to the museum a path through the museum. So you know, you're going to have to tell a story for that path. A library is quite the opposite. A library is, or at least a large national library or large state library, is meant to be a complete or as complete as possible within budgetary constraints collection of of humanity's knowledge and that's that's what i use a library for i don't i don't use it to hear an argument about the collection i use a library to find what well, you want to know things other. and you want to know well, things you want to know things about the world book, yes right? <laughs> yeah you want to know things about perhaps something that's happening in another country or something some movement that developed in in an in 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 the uk or but 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 this is the problem. They're getting rid of all those books. But I, you see, I want to. I want to find bad ideas in a library too. Yes, you want to find all ideas in a library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's astonishingly parochial. So, it's so parochial, and that's what that's what's astounding. And and even the the read the 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 readers of the Guardian and the article in the Guardian that talks about this this astonishing move by the the the, the library in Wellington are uh, are shocked. And if the readers of the Guardian are shocked. That you know, you know, it's a bad idea. It's got to be a terrible idea. That even the readers of the Guardian are saying, "No, don't get rid of these six hundred thousand books. We need them." It's a, it's actually it, it's both a um, uh, a conversation about Western civilization. So here's say um, New Zealand, which which was colonised, um, and so the people growing up there uh, in have inherited the mm. ideas, institutions, and values of Western civilization. Um, for, for better or for ill. And so from the perspective of those who identify uh, with that part of the New Zealand um, uh, population and culture, you would say, isn't it odd then to cut yourself off from that and to say all that local is, is not matter? And then I think, and this, you know, I, I have no ground on which to, to make any comment, but it's, it would seem to me that then for the... Uh, the Maori population of New Zealand and the Pacific Islanders 
to then be told that the only thing that could be relevant to them, that the only thing they could possibly find of value is uh, the knowledge, the artefacts, the cultures specific to that part of the globe in which they happen to find themselves at a time when the world has never been more globally connected is is, is also a strange sort of way to view these things. This is things. the knowledge you must know. You must not know anything. Isn't this isn't this a terrible as, thing? As, isn't this a terrible idea saying we're deciding what you should know? As opposed to come to our yeah. library, which is then a portal into the yes. into a world look of at, knowledge. Look at, look at what you can know. Not this is this, this is what you should know. We're limiting you. We're limiting you in your lives and your knowledge. And this is this is a terrible this is a terrible thing it, for them to be doing. It is. It is. But what I think is interesting to think about is to put this in the context of all the other stuff that's going on around us. Um, And it strikes me that what we're talking about is gatekeepers who want to use the institutions that they have editorial or managerial control over to change the way we view the world or the availability of information to us. Now, if you, I mean, we're doing this over Zoom, I've got two screens, I've got the internet over there, I've got the internet in front of me here as well. Like that's ludicrous, the idea that anybody could control the way we think about the world itself, regardless of how, no matter what the British Museum does, no matter what the Library of Wellington does, we have the capacity to get round those gatekeepers and they don't have the control over our Um, the way we see the world that they may have in previous generations. And so in in that sense, maybe we could think of this as an attempt to control by a dying class of gatekeepers who no longer have the power that they did, but knowing that they only have that power for so much longer, they're trying to wield it. Is that a fair way to think about this or...? A fight, wildly a, optimistic. A, a, a fight for relevance. A, a, a fight for relevance. No, no, it's an interesting concept. Um, uh, perhaps certainly libraries, less so museums. I mean, there is something still about a museum. Um, and uh, People still flock to the, yeah, to the, the, the I, I always museums. think it, and I can't think of the British Museum without thinking of, um, you know, Stendhal's disease, um, supposedly in Florence where people collapse with the, the power of what they've viewed when they go to Florence for the first time. Stendhal, the French author, was uh, supposedly the first to describe this in, in print, the sort of the, the psychic crisis. I, I um, almost experienced something similar in the British Museum on my very first overseas trip when walking around like a wide-eyed rube from Australia, <laughs> which I was, I turned, I literally just turned a corner into a room and there was the Rosetta yeah. Stone. And I, I still remember that yeah. that feeling of just not being this able to it. process it. Yeah. Something that... And you're like, wait, that's the Rosetta that's Stone. That's the actual Rosetta Stone. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ah, oh, this is what Reverend Doig was talking about in grade three, religious instruction. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I was eight, I actually, I was, this is before things got very heavily security centred in these music. I touched the Rosetta Stone. Oh, dear. Oh, no, did you really? <laughs> and the other thing I did was I put my hand in one of the Roman baths in Brighton just now because I, I loved history and archaeology. And I'm like, this is, how old is this water that I'm putting my hand in? I got shouted out both times, but it was worth it. Yeah. So since we're on the British Museum <laughs> with indulgence, where do you stand on the Parthenon marbles? Oh, they gosh. Go back? I, I, what, what's going to happen to them if they go back? This is my no, question. no. So, so no. You you make your argument, and I'll make mine. Well, I, I haven't given it much thought, but I think they're safe where they are. Make quite a lengthy argument, please, if you don't mind. They're just detailed. Um, they're very safe where they. They're are. very safe where they are. They are very safe where they are. But have you seen? So, I was in Greece last year, which you know, remember traveled. <laughs> what a fun fun memory that is. Um, uh, and have you seen the museum that they're built to house the Parthenon? No, I'm, I'm just, have I haven't seen any of that. It is, it is extraordinary. And so we might have been able to make the argument in the 1960s that they were safe where they are in the British Museum, but they would be magnificently well looked after in the um, current museum that has been built specifically for them. I did. I, I didn't know that they'd built a museum for them. So no, yeah. it's it, it's it's actually it's it's pretty 
pretty amusing because they've left the gaps just waiting for, for the them. Parthenon marbles. Just like, and this is where the Parthenon marbles will go, will go. when we get them back. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, people will still go to the museum. You went, you went anyway. That's a good so point. So it's a win-win outcome. You went anyway. They don't have the marbles. Oh, so I get to see them twice. Oh, that's it's, a, it's a museum of negative space. <laughs> they that's, can do what they did. It's a very postmodernist, Chris. They can do what they it's, did in the early 19th century, just make plaster casts of everything. Have you been to the, the Victorian Albert Museum? in London and you walk into this room mm. and they've got plaster casts of everything, facades of cathedrals. They went through like this period of going, in, we need to make casts In of Nashville, things. Tennessee, there is a complete re reconstruction of the Parthenon. Complete see, see Chris, you could see it there as well. Diana. You can see it three times. Uh, it's a <laughs> so I don't know why you're complaining. Tra travel the world to questionable <laughs> Parthenons. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, um, closer to home, Chris, uh, the other reason why we wanted to get uh, Bella back after her journey around Australia is uh, because of uh, a topic close to your heart, um, which never seems to go yes. away and we never seem to make much progress with, which is school curriculum. You were the author of a book on the school curriculum in 2011, I believe. Something like that. I, it was an edited volume, actually, Scott. But thank you for giving credit um, on the on the school curriculum and the 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 politics behind the school curriculum. And again, um, uh, I think what was interesting, what has been interesting to the secondary school curriculum primarily, but it also affects the primary school curriculum, is the um, threading of explicitly political messages through the curriculum and um I, I use the word political advisedly but why don't you actually bella will ask you where we stand with the school curriculum and how the debate has evolved in the last couple of years i'd be interested to hear so this um submission i made was um an inquiry um uh which was um led by mark latham because it they, the, the New South Wales is having a massive overhaul. New, sorry, New South Wales Creekin was having a massive overhaul, and so they um, commissioned um, uh, Professor Jeff Masters to write a 140-page um, review of the curriculum. Um, and reading the review is, well, it's heavy going. But but what we've what we've been saying in the in the IPA for a long time since you um, first launched your your sort of um, your review of the national curriculum was one of the major problems is the existence of these cross-curriculum priorities. So naturally I went to the master's room and thought, are, are they going to take these out finally? Is this going to be something that they're recommending? Are, the, are these things finally coming up? Because the national, the New South Wales curriculum just took the national, the, the priorities, holus bolus out of the, of the, the, the national curriculum. It didn't change anything. They've used the same little, same language, same symbols, same everything, inserted them into all the subjects, you know, whether they're relevant or not. Not only that, but they've actually, they've actually added them in, in the last couple of years into modern languages. Um, so if you learn Arabic, you suddenly have to talk about um, indigenous languages as well, which is really complicated. But um, so I looked through this master's review and I did looked and looked and looked and I did even, you know, I just, they did not mention cross-curriculum priorities once. And I thought it was extraordinary because they talked about one of the major problems being overcrowding, overcrowding so, the curriculum. So why don't we just clarify those cross-curriculum yeah, priorities? Sorry. So that's, I'm so used to um, talking about them. I assume everybody else knows what they are as well. No, no that's all right. I'll, uh, so the cross-curriculum priorities are a collection of um, ideas that are supposed to be threaded through every single subject at every single year level, regardless K to of 10, what yeah, subject. kindergarten to year 10, yeah. Um, uh, and so those are, from memory, Indigenous perspectives? Indigenous and Torres Strait, Ar Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander history. And sustainability. Yeah. Um, Sorry, can you so say that, that again? Which gives us the, the very amusing um, instances of Asian-Australian perspectives on algebra or yes or um yeah those sorts of things but that's the theory right that's the so so it, and that's why i say it's got a political argument it's quite explicitly got a political oh, it's argument. Very political. it says it says what do you learn outside just the specific content of your um uh primary and secondary education you learn about indigenous asian australian and sustainability, sustainability. perspectives that's yeah. what you do yeah um, and and it's remarkable to look through each subject and see how they've managed to embed these things. It's um, I gave some examples in the, my submission of sort of year four um, maths division and subtraction and fractions and things like that. And they just bung these Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander histories examples into into maths, um, which is just going to confuse everyone and make it much more difficult for the teacher. 
which is a point that you made and a point that I've made um, and, and a point that seems to be lost on um, a lot of the educationalists and the people that are actually writing and rewriting the curriculum because they refuse to take these things out. Um, um, because they, because I think they still believe that they should be priorities. They're still politically motivated and they still believe that these are things that should be, that every child in Australia should have drilled into them from the moment they arrive to the, to, to the moment they leave. So um, as, as Scott said, you know, uh, we've been saying this for years and they don't listen. Um, so but, I, but the New South Wales Upper House Inquiry... The, that, the, uh, the Upper choir, yeah, the New South Wales Upper House Inquiry is listening but they're not authoring the curriculum. This is the problem. But you talked to them the other day I did, well. yes. I, um, I talked to them. They wanted to talk about the cross-curriculum priorities, um, and I talked for about half an hour, and I gave my evidence, and um, I, I probably got a little bit too... too um, ang not angry, but I was, I was passionate about it, um, and because it's frustrating to see, to see these priorities just sort of embedded in the curriculum and never to be taken out. You know, once they're in, you never take them out. And I think uh, our stance um, was just get rid of the cross-curriculum priorities altogether. Just, uh, just, just, just take them out. Um, and and they did ask rightly so. Well, would you have a Western civilization cross-curriculum priority? Um, and I said no because that's going to that's the same thing. It's going to clog up other things. You shouldn't really be talking about... It's pure maths. You don't need to start talking about the values, the foundations, and the institutions of Western civilization in a, in a grade four maths class. It would be just as ridiculous as sustainability. But Yeah, which is, which is why there's nothing wrong with learning about indigenous no, perspectives just don't, or Asian perspectives. Just don't, just don't keep forcing them into places they don't belong. Yeah, just, uh, or, or you don't make it the narrative of all education. Yeah. And and so so and and when I say it's like it is explicitly political because again imagine if instead of having those three you had our British heritage yes. western civilization yeah. imagine, and imagine how long industrial that would last. progress yeah. or yeah. something like that. It just it just wouldn't last. It is and and we would um, be putting in those in because we would believe that this is what everyone needs to know but I would be saying well let's just let's just teach them that in history let's yeah, you know let's, um, let's not let's nail in, let's nail maths in yeah maths, let's let's nail maths. We'll let's teach them the how to stuff. read and write and add up and then let's talk about let's give them some history so, classes well actually I think no I think there is a terrific argument for getting the um, encounter with Asia uh, into the curriculum I think we should say now let's do as a case study Taiwan where their children are about three years ahead of ours in maths. Yes. Now let's look at Singapore. No, I wonder, no what's, what are they doing that we're not... And they did ask in the... They <laughs> That's did a ask, perspective I'd like to see. They did ask in the, in the inquiries, anyone else, does anyone else in the world have these cross-curriculum priorities? And I was able to say, no one else in the world has cross-curriculum priorities in their national curriculum or their state curriculums. Yeah. So... Yeah. There you so go. we lead the world. Is so we lead the world. <laughs> yeah, depending on how you look at it. No, yeah. look, looking. Good luck uh, to Mark Latham and the uh, mm. and, and that committee of inquiry. Let's hope they make an impact. Let's hope there's some kind of uh, thinking about that in the New South Wales I government. Hope so. It is now uh, getting on to five or six years since the uh, federal coalition government commissioned an inquiry, um, which found rec which recommended the removal of the cross-curriculum priorities from the national curriculum, and we're still waiting. Um, and actually, there's a uh, another national curriculum review early next year. Oh, so, so they can ignore that what, too. I wonder what I'll be saying for that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, thanks, Bella. We have come to that part of the show where our panellists will share what they've been reading, watching, or listening to. Um, Chris, would you like to commence? Of course. So I have been watching, so I'm still reading the Gotham book, which as I described is like a million pages long and is fantastic, but it doesn't give me a lot of time for, um, for, for the higher, higher pursuits in life. Um, so I'm watching a um, TV show called The Norseman or Norseman. Um, it's a Norwegian comedy TV series. It's on Netflix. It's in, it's in English. Apparently they filmed it in both Norwegian and English, but it means it's all Norwegian actors with um, obviously Norwegian um, accents and everything like that. What it is, is it's a sort of combination of Game of Thrones and The Office, shall we say. Um, and the, uh, the main character is a sort of David Brent of the Vikings um, running a, or ultimately becoming a sort of semi-chieftain of the village, but completely 
incompetent, um, making terrible management decisions. Um, it's written as if, so it's, it's written as if it's an in-office drama, but of course it's about pillaging and <laughs> death and um, Just uh, Vikings violence. being Vikings. Uh, like like so a traditional viking story but as if it's just bad management stuff <laughs> so it is it's actually great fun um it's it's as uh, dark as it should be so it's not going to shy away from of course the terrible things that the viking did and it's going to make as much black comedy out of those things as it possibly can so know what you're getting into but it is um it's definitely worthwhile have they have they sacked the British Isles yet? Have we got to that that episode? No, they do that. They do that regularly, and they bring people back. <laughs> and one of the farm, people they, you know, one of the people they bring back is an actor, and he becomes the town's creative director, <laughs> um, which was again a bad leadership decision on behalf of the. Anyway, it's it's good fun. It's good fun. Uh, no, brilliant. Actually, Chris, uh, I might go next because uh, it's my show is about Canada. Um, and Ooh, I, I, I like know Canada. you have uh, taken a fondness for Canada. I was looking on Amazon Prime and I found this program. God, I was so bored. Um, uh, <laughs> on the War of 1812 between... It's when, you, it's when you start browsing Amazon Prime that you know you're really cooked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like browsing that's Netflix. A... Yeah. That's, but once you hit Amazon Prime, you're like, oh, God. Yeah, it's just, things just, aren't going yeah, well for me this talk, evening. Talk about an attic. That's what Amazon Prime is. It's whatever, whatever was left, whatever Netflix passed on. It's true. <laughs> finishes up on Amazon Prime. Um, the stuff that Stan rejects. Um, it was a twenty-year-old documentary on the War of eighteen twelve oh, between gosh, Canada Stan. and America. But I gave it a go, and it was awesome. It was so fantastic. It was so cheesy. It was right in, at the start of that whole genre of, hey, let's get actors to dress up <laughs> as redcoats oh, nice. and narrate. Here's a red coat. From, from their diaries and uh, in in uh, you know very uh, faux British accents. Um, was it there? Was it like the smoke and there's six of them and you just hear the drums and yep. the little whistle. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. Right, and awesome. and the guy playing the Indian chief has you know feathers in his hair and all all this and and you know troops of of the reenactors. So uh, so this was a war, a real war between America and the British Empire, which meant in those days Canada. Mm. So it, it, so this is why I did give it a go. In fairness, that, that's pretty cool. And uh, and I had read uh, Paul Johnson's book, uh, 1815, Birth of the Modern World, starts with Andrew Jackson in the final battle of that war at New Orleans, which was fought after the peace treaty had been signed, but it was signed in Belgium, so they didn't know. And it was a bloody slaughter, uh, which is why Jackson became so famous. He kicked the British ass and uh, a disaster for the British. Uh, and one of the reasons why they... Um, the peace stuck. So a very, very important war that no one knows about because it's a little bit embarrassing that, um, you know, the, the members of NATO once, you know, invaded each other. And they sacked DC uh, as well. Yes, they sacked DC because what had happened was uh, all the British... There was a war going on with some bloke called Napoleon you might have heard of. So there weren't that many British troops in, um, in Canada. And so the Americans really thought they would go in there and just... Uh, uh, conquer and subsume, uh, at, at the very least, the bits of Canada closest to the American border. But the Brits, um, well, the first thing they do was they got uh, they were already friendly with the Indian tribes and the great leader Tecumseh, and those buggers could fight. <laughs> and uh, and then the French, who were supposedly going to roll rise up in revolt, uh, uh, the Governor General of, of Canada went to them and, and basically said, "What do you want? <laughs> you know, autonomy, Catholicism, <laughs> you know, all of these things. No worries." So it was not very many British troops, uh, the local militias, the, the 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 French colonists, and these very fierce Indian warriors warriors who'd been promised that they would get a homeland of their own. So a uh, fascinating dynamic and the uh, Americans, they're, they're, they're first, uh, for about the first two years, were completely amateurish and every time they tried to invade Canada, they got um, repulsed. 
uh, at great loss. It was quite embarrassing for, for Madison, the president. So this unfolds over four episodes of a documentary, which I, I got, finished up getting right into. And there's lots, all the comments on IMDb are like, I didn't think I'd like this. <laughs> but it's, it's just strangely attractive and, and interesting. And, and it was a, a fascinating war. Uh, that actually set set them up to be um, uh, neighbours for a long time, as as uh, Paul Johnson remarked, uh, and as this concludes, um, after three years of some pretty bloody battles, not not industrial scale, not like the American Civil War, um, but uh, the agreement in Belgium in was simply for status quo antebellum, which just means let's just go back to the way everything was before the war. So the the great losers out of this were the Indians. Tecumseh was killed in battle and their dream of an Indian homeland essentially in what was Michigan. That was the plan. So they invaded Michigan um, and were quite successful at it. Um, but, of course, uh, it, they went back to the old borders and the, in, uh, the local Indian tribes never got their homeland. So they lost uh, big time. But uh, anyway, there you go. Amazon Prime, if anyone wants to have a look good, at that. Good. Just random old documentaries. Random old documentaries, if you like history. Yeah, well, I, I think I'd like to watch that. I don't have Amazon Prime, though, so it's worth joining for. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, I've been watching, um, like a lot of people, the uh, psychological drama called The Undoing, which is an HBO psychological drama. I think, Scott, you're one of the fellow yes. watchers from behind the sofa. It's been very, very popular at the IPA. Very, very popular at the IPA. Um, it's not something I would... I'm not really into psychological dramas, but this is... Um, brilliant i've got to say and it's hugh grant's i think it's the role that hugh grant was born for mm. um i think he's been working his whole career for this one this not, one role not not notting hill not or? not not notting hill no actually you know there's elements of the the notting hill hugh grant in it and that's what makes the show so brilliant isn't it really yeah when he turns the charm on oh he turns it on and he really does for every, for viewers and for nicole kidman yes. um so so it's nicole kidman hugh grant uh said new york uber wealthy family um murder of a, 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 a beautiful woman we only meet in the first episode and then the ensuing mystery and drama and court case and who, uh, it's just a it's a it's a really well-made whodunit so, yes it is isn't it's it brilliant um and um and you wouldn't you wouldn't think there'd be chemistry between no, Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman but it was fan it was absolutely amazing it was they both did brilliantly and then and then it's like uh she goes I'm going to see my dad and it's like oh my god it's, oh, it's Donald it's Sutherland daughter, yeah Donald Sutherland turns around and he's just he take look he carries every scene it's Every scene he's in is just is just uh, awesome. He's he's amazing. So and it's only six parts. Yeah, six parts. Um, and and I made the mistake of starting watching it at the beginning, so I had to wait a week in between episodes, I which know. was torture. Um, so if you haven't watched it, it's great because it's all there, ready to go now. So you don't have to wait. You don't have to spend six weeks wondering what's going to happen. <laughs> no, you can binge. Begin, begin you can binge. Error. That's why I that's made right. it to watch Stranger Dad. Things as yeah. well. So. Yes, so you don't have to wait. So that's my recommendation. Um, and I think it's it's it's. It's it's a really good really good piece of viewing. wholeheartedly endorsed endorsed by Scott. Yes. So no, I, I remarked that. Uh, yes, anyway, no. I'll, and we no, can't give I'll, it away. We can't. Yeah, no, yeah, I, so, I won't say anything more. Yeah. Anyway, no, terrific, terrific show. Uh, thank you. You have been listening to, looking forward to production of the Institute of Public Affairs. You're probably a member. I hope you remember. Uh, if you're not, do get our website and so you can join or donate. Lots of great offers there at the moment. There might be some coffee mugs. There's uh, certainly an opportunity to buy a copy of Climate Change, The Facts, uh, in a bundle with your membership, an absolute uh, bargain at $55. Uh, do go and have a poke around or just contact me and I'll show you where, you, where to find that. Um, big thank you to my co-host, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. A, a very big thank you to Dr. Bella Debrera. Great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Melbourne. Certainly much better than the one you left uh, <laughs> yes, a couple of months ago. Uh, thanks to uh, Mitch and Steve for helping us put the show together. And we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. 